0: We are so thankful that you're here today. It's good to see you. We're glad that you're able to be with us today. And I would like to uh, make an announcement in the fact that all of this month, we are collecting our Annie Armstrong Easter offering. Uh, All the proceeds from that offering go to the North American Mission Board for North American Missions. There are envelopes in the uh, pews. If you would like to to give to that, we'll be collecting that uh, all month, I meant to announced that earlier and I forgot. Uh, it is good to see you uh, today. We are glad that you are here on this Resurrection Sunday. We invite you back any time that you have opportunity to come. We'll be glad uh, for you to be here and, and to worship with us here at Old New Hope. Now last week we talked about the resurrection of Jesus, really the crucifixion of Jesus. We, talked, we looked at the seven last words of Jesus Christ on the cross. Jesus, uh, while on the cross, the first thing that he said was, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. And then he told the thief that today you will be with me in paradise. Then he looked at his mother and he saw his mother and realized that he was not going to be there to be able to take care of her anymore, and he saw his disciple John sitting next to her, and Jesus looked at his mother and said, Mom, here's your son, Mom. Go home with John. And he said, John, take care of my mom. And then Jesus said, I thirst. I'm thirsty. And then he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Then he said, it is finished. And when he said it is finished, he didn't mean that his life was finished. He was going to live on. What was finished was God's plan to redeem mankind. God's plan to save mankind was finished. He said, it is finished. And then he says, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. And we understand that Jesus died just as he lived. Everything that Jesus did was to fulfill the will of the Father, to do the will of the Father. And that was last week's message. But Paul tells us if you look at 1 Corinthians 15, Verses 1 through 4. This is not going to be our main text. But we're going to use this kind of as a jumping off place this morning. 1 Corinthians 15. And we're going to read verses 1 through 4. Paul has written a letter to the church at 1 Corinthians. And I call the church at Corinth Paul's problem child because... Uh, they had a, a lot of issues going on in the Corinthian church. Paul writes two letters to them that we have collected in what we know as the Bible. But when you read First and Second Corinthians, there are at least two letters that, are, uh, that we know Paul wrote them that are not in the Bible. So Paul wrote these folks quite often. Remember, they didn't have the Bible like we have. Paul would write a letter to them and that letter would be read. To them uh, in in, the, in a public hearing. But in first, by the time Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, there was a group of people that began to teach. And what what it turns into what we know is Gnosticism. And, and that's, a, that's a big word. You don't need to know what that word means. But basically one of the things that Gnostics taught, especially early Gnostics, they taught that Jesus really didn't raise from the dead. That his spirit rose from the dead, but his body really didn't raise from the dead. And so Paul writes 1 Corinthians specifically, 1 Corinthians 15. He addressed, Now Paul didn't write 1 Corinthians in chapter and verse form. He wrote it as one big letter. 1 Corinthians, what we know is 1 Corinthians 15, would have just started a new paragraph. But Paul writes this section to let the Corinthian Christians know and by virtue of us having these words in the Bible, we can know that there is a resurrection. This is why we worship uh, on Sunday morning. But frankly, it's why we worship every day. And we'll get more into that here in just a minute. But 1 Corinthians fifteen one through 4. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preach to you, which also you received and in which you stand. By which also you were saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Paul says in verse 3, I delivered to you first of all, or of most importance, Paul tells them that there are some things in Scripture that are more important than other things. There are some things in the gospel that are more important than other things. But Paul tells us that the central focus of the gospel, and notice that there are three things here the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. That's what makes up the core of the gospel. That's what makes up the most important part of the gospel. Notice that these three things are bookend by the phrase, according to scripture. And we'll get more into that here in just a minute. But the whole gospel message, the word gospel simply means good news. And the good news of the gospel is the fact that Jesus died, he was buried, and then he arose. And last week we talked about the fact that Jesus died. Today I want us to focus on the burial and the resurrection, but specifically the burial during the first part of this lesson. Uh, it's important to understand, I call the burial of Jesus the ignored part of the gospel because we talk a lot about Good Friday and the crucifixion and we talk about Easter Sunday and the resurrection. And But the fact that Jesus was buried plays a central part in what we know as the gospel and what we know in the good news Of Jesus Christ. So to look at that, let's look at Luke chapter 23. That's going to be our main text. Luke chapter 23. Verses 50 to 56. We're going to look at the burial of Jesus this morning. Spending a little time looking at that. Luke 23, beginning at verse 50. Now behold, there was a man named Joseph, a council member of good and a just man. He had not consented to their decision. Indeed, he was from Arimathea, a city of the Jews who himself was also waiting for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down, wrapped it in linen, and laid it in a tomb that was hewn out of the rock, where no one had ever lain before. That day was the preparation and the Sabbath drew near. And the women who had come with him from Galilee followed after. And they observed the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and fragrant oils. And they rested on the Sabbath according to the commandment. Well, what does the burial of Jesus teach us? Can I suggest to us first of all that the burial of Jesus teaches us about the sovereignty of God. When I use the phrase sovereignty of God, what I mean by that is God's in charge of everything. There's nothing that happens in this world that doesn't happen according to God's plan. God is not going to all of a sudden look down from heaven and see something that someone here on earth does and say, oh my goodness, that caught me by surprise. I didn't know that was going to happen. God understands what that means, and the burial of Jesus talks about that. At first glance, the, the sudden betrayal of Jesus, his arrest, his crucifixion, his burial, it just kind of looks spur of the moment, doesn't it? When we read it in scripture, the, the apostles and Jesus go out from uh, from their upper room where they had the last supper, they go to the garden of Gethsemane, that all of a sudden Judas happens to show up at They take Jesus and there just so happens to be Caiaphas and Annas and the Jewish priest where they could have a trial and this just so happened to have Pilate and it just so happened that this happened that it just seems spur of the moment. But can I remind us that it really is not spur of the moment. All of this happened according to God's plan. Back when we read in 1 Corinthians 15, The death, the burial, and resurrection was all a plan of God. It was all according to Scripture. Keep your finger here in Luke and look way back in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah was written in the 8th century, some 900 years before the crucifixion, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And let's look here in in, in Isaiah 53. Isaiah gives a terrific description and a terrific prophecy of what was going to happen to the suffering Savior. Isaiah 53, beginning at verse 7. Well, let's go back to verse 5. But he, that's Jesus, was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. And we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was stricken. Watch verse 9. And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. This prophecy, as I said, was written in the ninth century, or in the 8th century, Some 900 years before Jesus was crucified. Look what it says about the crucifixion. It says that he he died for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. They gave him stripes. Verse 7, he was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he was silent. Remember when Jesus was silent before Pilate? Uh, It says there in verse 8, he was taken from prison and from judgment. He was cut off from the land of the living. That means he was killed. He lost his life. He was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was stricken. Why did he die? He died for the people's sins, for their sins, and for our sins, by the way. We talked about that last week. Then in verse 9, they made his grave with the wicked. Who died with Jesus? Two thieves, right? And then it says that, but with the rich at his death. This is a prophecy that Jesus, the, the Messiah, is going to be buried in a rich man's tomb. So Isaiah writes this some 900 years before it actually happened. Now we look at it in the spur of the moment, it looks very haphazard. But this was all according to plan as we get back to Luke 23. Uh, Joseph of Arimathea, and we'll talk more about him in just a minute, buries the body of Jesus. And so we see the sovereignty of God. God knew all this was going to happen 800 years before it happened. He prophesied and said, this would happen, this would happen, that would happen. But alongside of God's sovereignty in the burial of Jesus, we also see that God is sovereign, but God also uses human beings and the human agency in God's plan. Joseph of Arimathea was the fellow that on the tomb where Jesus was buried and we don't know a lot about Arimathea we know it was a small rural area it was a well to do area it would sort of be like today someone saying Brentwood or Belle Meade uh, when you describe the, the, the villages that are outside of Nashville Arimathea was we're not sure exactly where it was probably about 20 miles or so from Jerusalem it was a little distance away but but Joseph was a wealthy man and scripture here in Luke chapter 23 tells us in verse 50 that he was part of the council. He was part of the ruling body of the Jews. He was part of the Sanhedrin. But it says that he was a good and just man and he did not agree with the idea of having Jesus killed. When He, he was waiting, verse 51, for the kingdom of God when he sees that Jesus is, about, is dead. He goes to Pilate and he asks for the body of Jesus. And this took a lot of courage on the part of Joseph, didn't it? Uh, Because Pilate had just put Jesus to death and accused him of insurrection. In a very real way, Joseph is admitting that he kind of is interested about this Jesus fellow. I'd like to bury him and take care of the body. Pilate gives permission for them to do that. Uh, and Jesus is buried. Now, it seems sort of spur of the moment. Why in the world would a guy from Arimathea buy a tomb just outside of Jerusalem? You think that wouldn't you think you'd want to be buried in your hometown? You know, a lot of times when folks are buried today, they're buried in the family plot or in the family cemetery. For whatever reason, Joseph bought a tomb just outside of Jerusalem in a garden right outside of Jerusalem right by a place called the skull and we'll we'll come back to this idea in just a minute but when I was researching for this message I did quite a bit of research on first century burial practices in Jerusalem and, and in Jew, uh, the Jewish culture and the Jewish society and I'm not going to tell you everything that I studied but I am going to sum it up for you, because it helps us to understand a little bit when we read about the burial of Jesus, what that entailed. When you see the word tomb uh, in verse 53, uh, when Joseph of Arimathea took it down, he wrapped it in linen, he laid it in a tomb. When we think of tombs, we think of like graves out in the graveyard, right out here. But this idea of a tomb was more what we think of in our world as a crypt or a mausoleum. It was a family burial place. And, what, and only rich folks could have a tomb. Only rich folks could have a crypt. And they would hire someone to either take a cave and enlarge the cave. Remember in the Old Testament when Abraham bought the cave at Machpelah, that field that had the cave at Machpelah? Well, sometimes they would take the cave and they would open that cave up Or they would cut into the rock, as the case in this particular uh, verse. Remember in verse 53 it says, it was hewn, it was cut out of the rock. Someone would take a hammer and chisel, and they would cut this mausoleum, this crypt, out of the rock. It would take up to two months to do this. It was quite expensive to uh, make a family tomb, a family mausoleum. And then in the floor of the mausoleum, in in the floor of the tomb, three or four holes would be dug out of the rock so that they could put a body. And so let's say Uncle Bob died. And Uncle Bob has passed away. The Jews did not embalm. The Egyptians were the only ancient culture that embalmed. So what the Jews would do, they would take the body, they'd take Uncle Bob, and they'd wrap him in a shroud, a burial shroud, and they would put uh, spices in that burial shroud, and they would lay the body in the grave or into the tomb into the grave there, and people would come and visit. They would change out the spices to hold the smell down, and loved ones and family members could come into that mausoleum, into that crypt, to pay homage to, to pay their last respects, to visit with Uncle Bob. And now when Uncle Bob's body decomposed all the way down where there's nothing left but bone, they would take a box called an ossuary, and the box was the size of a person's femur bone. That's the leg. And Evelyn knows all about the femur bone now. That's the bone that goes from the hip to the knee. That's the longest bone in the human body. They would take all of these bones, they would put them in this box called an ossuary, and they would label the box Uncle Bob, and they would put it on a shelf, and then the grave there would be ready for the next body that would come along. So that's the way that first century folks buried their loved ones. The crazy part about this is why in the world would Joseph of Arimathea build a, hire somebody to build a family tomb just outside of Jerusalem when he lived in Arimathea? You know what? We'll never know. But I tell you this, God in his sovereignty took the decision that Joseph of Arimathea made, and he fulfilled prophecy that was made 900 years before. Y'all with me? God's sovereignty is all over this, but so is the use of human agency. All through history, God's sovereignty, God has a plan. Scripture tells us that God's plan for mankind, even the way the world's shaping out today, before before God ever said, let there be light, and earth started, God knew how it was going to end. And everything that happens in between is unfolding according to God's plan, but God takes our human decisions and he fulfills his will. So God's sovereignty and man's ability to choose, they run side by side through history like a railroad track. One rail is God's sovereignty, God's plan,
1: The other side is
0: human decisions. God used Egypt and Babylon and Assyria and Moses and David and Paul and Peter and Joseph of Arimathea. All of these folks were free to make their own decisions. That's why as Baptists we believe very strongly in the phrase, whosoever will. We have the decision to decide are we going to accept Christ or are we going to reject Christ. But alongside of human choice is God's plan. Alongside of human choice is God's sovereignty. And the burial of Jesus talks to us about that. The burial of Jesus is very, very serious. Well, why is the burial important, you say? You realize that without the burial of Jesus, there'd be no resurrection. Because if Jesus wasn't buried, that means that Jesus never died. And it's very critical for us to understand, if there is a resurrection, there had to be a death. Jesus didn't just pass out. Jesus didn't just swoon. Didn't, Jesus didn't just lay comatose for three days. Jesus died. And he was buried. And on the third day, he arose. The burial of Jesus Christ confirms the death of Jesus Christ. And we understand from 1 Corinthians that to have a complete gospel, you have to have the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus. Because all three of those events are the foundation of what happens to us in the new birth. When we are dead to sin, buried to our old life, and raised to walk in newness of life. You had to have a burial for there to be a crucifixion. And something else that laid on my heart when I was putting this together and looking at the idea of the the burial of Jesus. In Jewish culture, the Sabbath began every Friday at sundown. But the Friday when Jesus died, was not only Sabbath, it was also the Friday of Passover. It was a high holy day in, in, Jewish, uh, in Jewish culture and in the Jewish religion. Uh, it was also time for the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. Uh, so Jesus Christ died very easily. Could God had very easily, if he'd have wanted to, could Jesus have died on a Wednesday and be raised on a Thursday if that's what God wanted to do? That, that, God knew anything, right? Anybody that can say, let there be light, and there's light. He can pretty well do whatever he wants. But God, in his sovereignty, on Passover Friday, the scapegoat, Jesus Christ, dies as the perfect sacrificial Passover lamb. He's put in the tomb before sundown on Friday night, he lays in the tomb on Saturday. Saturday was the Sabbath day. What did they do on the Sabbath day? They rested, right? After God created the world for six days, what did he do? He rested on the Sabbath day. Jesus Christ's body is resting in the tomb on the Sabbath day. Notice in verse 56, Luke points this out, that they, the women, returned and prepared spices and fragrant oils, and they rested on the Sabbath according to the commandments. So, Jesus was the Passover lamb, killed on the day of preparation, on that Friday, put in the tomb before sundown. He rests on the Sabbath day. Sabbath would have ended on Saturday at sundown. And then Sunday morning is a new day. Sunday morning, Jesus raises from the dead to do a new thing, right? To introduce a new age, to introduce the gospel age. Jesus is dead, he's buried, and he rises again. And before we get off the burial of Jesus, how was the burial of Jesus unique? It's important to understand that Jesus died and was buried because of what happens next. The burial of Jesus is unique because up to this point, Jesus is the first human in history to ever die, to be buried, and raised, never to die again. Raised to live forever. The book of Romans says Jesus is our first fruits. He's the first fruits of the resurrection. Jesus is the first one to be raised to never die again. Now Lazarus was raised from the dead. Jesus raised a couple of people from the dead. Elijah raised the widow's son in the Old Testament. There's been a few folks that have been raised, but they died again. Jesus Christ is the first person in human history, and the only person in human history to this point that has died to be raised never to die again. But we understand that because he lives, we can live. Because he lives, we have hope. Because he died and was buried and rose again, we have hope. Now last week, we talked about the death of Jesus. This week we've talked about the burial of Jesus. We're going to talk about the resurrection of Jesus in detail next week. So this just kind of like the TV when you're watching an episode of Walker or whatever and it puts it at the very end to be continued and you have to wait until next week to, to find out what happens next. I'll, I'll give you a spore. He, he's alive. But the way we're going to look at this next week is the fact, what if we didn't have the resurrection? Because just to kind of late set the table for you, the resurrection is the foundation stone for everything we believe as Christians. Either Jesus is who he says he is. He says he's God. He was the sacrifice, the perfect sacrificial lamb that died for our sins. He was raised on the third day. Either he is who he says he is and he did everything he claimed to do or he's the biggest liar the world's ever known. There is no in-between. Jesus can't be a good man. A good man can't be a liar and a fraud. A lot of people like the teachings of Jesus but they hesitate to believe that a dead guy's walking around. That's the foundation of our faith. That's what exploded the, the Christian faith in the first century. You ever think about the fact they didn't have the Bible? They didn't have the computer. They didn't have the internet. They didn't have gospel tracts. They didn't have the telephone. They didn't have TV. They didn't have radio. But by the end of the first century, the gospel has spread from Jerusalem, that little city in Palestine. It had spread as far uh, as the British Isles, what we know today as the British Isles. By the first century, those apostles and early Christians took the gospel that far, that way, without the use of all the great technology we had. You know what they had? They believed in a resurrected Jesus. And they went everybody, everywhere, telling somebody about Jesus. You know that song that they play on fish and the way, now let me tell you about my Jesus? That's what they did. And that's what we are charged to do. But that's next week. We invite you to come back. But, before we dismiss, can I tell you that, Miss Mary, if you will to come on up to the piano, can I tell you that the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus is the best news ever? I don't know what you've gotten in your life as good news. Uh, I uh, back some twenty-two years ago on June the fifteenth, I was fishing in the Piney River on a Saturday, and when I was walking down the river, the bad part of walking down the river is to get back home. You got to walk back up the river in the river current, and my chest started hurting. And I I didn't think anything about it. I got in my car, and I went to work like I usually do. I had the closing shift. And when I got to work, the opening manager said, you don't look too good. Uh, Why don't you go to the hospital? I said, I'll I'll be all right. And she said, no, you go ahead and go to the hospital. I'll I'll stay here till you get back. And she didn't know I was going to be gone 12 weeks. But I got to the emergency room. They did an EKG, and I met a man by the name of Dr. Joe Freddie. And Dr. Freddie looked at me. He said, uh, I've got some good news. He said, the good news is you're not having a heart attack. I said, boy, that is good news. Where's my clothes? You know, I was, I was ready. He goes, no, I've got some bad news. He said, the good news is you're not having a heart attack. He said, the bad news is you will have one within the next six months, and when you have it, it'll kill you. And uh, I said, okay, so what are we going to do? And he said, you need to have a triple bypass. I said, I'm 38 years old. I'm too young for a triple bypass. And he looked right at me, took his glasses off and said, are you too young to die? So I said, okay, let's do the triple bypass. And you put it that way. And so that's what we did. And I've had off and on heart problems since then. But the cardiologist has always said, good news, we can fix it. That's good news for me, the fact that technology can fix that. It's good news that technology can fix Miss Evelyn's leg, right? It's good news that they can do a lot. But let me tell you the best news. The best news is that Jesus died, and he was buried, and he arose. The reason that's the best news is is because my heart attack might kill me physically, but it's got nothing to do about my spirit, my soul. We're all every human being that's ever lived is dying of something worse than heart trouble. We're dying of sin. We're in the we're in the grips of sin. We, we've been slaved to sin. And you may say, "Well, I'm not as bad as so and so, and I'm not as bad as such and such." God doesn't grade on the curve. Scripture tells us that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That's Romans 3, verse 23. All of us, everybody, every one of us, we've sinned. And that sin separates us from God. And there's not enough good works. There's not enough good things. We can't do enough to get back in God's good graces. We can't get back to God. Sin has put a chasm there that we can't get across. It's put a gulf we can't go from here to where God is. So you know what God did? God knew that and God sent his son to die for me and for you. He died on a cross. We read about that in Isaiah. Prophesied it 900 years before it actually happened. He died for you and for me so that we could get back to God. Y'all, that's good news. Because when you trust in The finished work on the cross, your soul has been cleansed. You'll have a new heart. You'll have a new will. You'll have a new life. And the fact that Jesus raised from the dead is proof that God accepted Jesus' sacrifice on Calvary. And maybe you say, Well, I came to Christ years ago at vacation Bible school. And you know what? If you did, I'm so thankful you did. But the question I've got for you is, are you living like it? Are you living like a Christ follower? Are you living like someone who has made Jesus their Savior? The good news is, God's given you time to think about it and come back to him.